don't be um, uh, uh, too uh, excited that I got dressed up like this today. I'm doing a funeral after this, and uh, I, did, I, I did remove the funeral notes from my notes before I got here, just before I got here. But you could, you could have gotten two for one. John 7 is our text for study today, and it's a very long chapter, verses, uh, 52 verses. So I'm going to read through and then comment after I read, and we'll just work through the passage that way. Uh, John 7, uh, like every chapter of, of uh, John, you have, it's, a, it's become a redundant outline, a gloriously redundant outline the proof of who Jesus is. We've been focusing this semester on the person of Jesus. Who is he? Not just what he does. Jesus went here, Jesus went there, Jesus did this miracle, Jesus did that miracle. But who is he? And uh, we are asking in particular in this chapter, is he enough to entrust your whole life to him for all of eternity? You know, when something proves, when something promises to be uh, truly effective, the most effective, the most effective product, uh, we're asking several things. We're asking, is it better than all the others? Is it really better than all the others? Is it true to its claims? Does its presence make a difference? Well, you can hear from my voice that uh, I'm... Uh, I've, uh, affected by uh, the River City, and uh, God has always called me to River Cities for some reason. My next stop is going to be the desert. But uh, by being in these River Cities, we're always in look, always on the lookout for something, right? That's the best disinfectant. It's the best, the most effective treatment for mold. And uh, it's it's uh, I've come to love bleach. It's love bleach. One of my friends calls it the scent of angels, bleach. The most effective disinfectant. Now, I'm looking at some scientists around here. They're going to say, no, it's hydrochloric acid. I know that, Shang. But, uh, but we can't afford hydrochloric acid. We can't get that. Bleach, for our purposes, is the most effective. And how do we know it is? Uh, because it works. It is better than the others. It, um, it is, and when it's been present, you know it's been there. I have clothes in my closet to prove it. I have my bleach clothes. You know, they all look like they're tie-dyed. Bleach, its presence proves that it is effective, that it is true to its claims. It makes a transformative difference. Now, Jesus, by the authors of the New Testament, is claiming to be the most effective savior of your soul, the Messiah to whom alone you should entrust your soul for all of eternity. And in our passage, we see from his person and his teaching and his presence that he is the fulfillment of that promise. So let's work our way through this long passage and uh, see if that indeed is true, beginning in verse 1. And uh, let me pray again before I start reading God's word. Lord Jesus, send your spirit 
to open our eyes that we would see beautiful, wonderful things in this portion of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. After this, uh, after his uh, conversation with the 12 um, about whether they are going to leave him or not, are you going to you're going to depart from me too? Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Okay. Jesus says after this, he went to Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to be the world, to, to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Now, we'll talk more about this feast in a moment, but the Feast of Booths was a fall festival, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Sometimes you'll see Jewish expressions or tributes to that feast around here, or if you've been in Israel, you've certainly seen them. And uh, they'll, they'll build temporary dwellings out in their yards, or they'll put up um, uh, some kind of uh, uh, brush, you know, over a certain opening, maybe around their synagogue. Some kind of tribute in their, uh, in their house or in their, in their uh, places of worship to remind themselves that in the wilderness they lived in tents, they lived in temporary dwellings. It also is to remind them that God is the producer of all their increase, that he's the, the Lord of the harvest. So they're all going up to the temple to have this celebration, to remember that uh, they are dependent on him for everything, that he took them through the desert, that he's the one who provides everything they have, and then ironically, they are rejecting the fulfillment of that feast. But for now, in this first point, we're asking this question, is Jesus really the person we need who is going to be the most effective Messiah, the one to whom we can entrust ourselves. And here, by the process of elimination, John demonstrates that uh, Jesus is indeed the Christ. That's all he can be. He can't be anything less. Uh, John is writing this gospel, in fact, to prove that. You've probably already looked at this passage, but you go back to the end of John, John chapter 21, the very end. This is the disciple, he says in verse 24, who is bearing witness about these things and has written about these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did where every one of them written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books would be written. This whole book is to prove that Jesus is the Christ and his person proves it. Number one, verses one to nine show us that he is not of this world. He is not of this world. 
There is very little about Jesus that resembles the world's strongest opinions. Uh, Jesus said, if you're struck on, your, on one cheek, turn to your enemy the other. Uh, in giving, you will receive. Uh, forgive that it might be forgiven you. Uh, pray for your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Everything that Jesus represents and teaches is that of an upside-down kingdom. So it's very important for us, if we're going to entrust our lives to Jesus, to realize it's going to put us at odds with many around us. If you feel yourself comfortably fitting in in your social circles, if you feel yourself comfortably fitting in with the, with the uh, opinions that uh, surround you uh, outside of, of, uh, of the believers in Christ, if you find yourself comfortably watching the news, you find yourself comfortably listening to the commentary of the primary opinion makers of the, of the country, you need to question yourself. Is Jesus really my Lord? Because Jesus was hated. He wasn't just tolerated. It wasn't that he just, you know, he's so weird. He's such a freak. He was hated. Because he represented everything that was a challenge to the majority around him. He's not of this world. Secondly, verses 10 through 13, he is not merely good. After his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. These are religious people. This is a religious gathering. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. It is possible also to fit in comfortably with a religious, a whole religious society that is not following Jesus. Jesus uh, was tolerated by some as being merely good, which is really the most common opinion uh, in our uh, circles too, especially in, uh, in America. In fact, there's a rise in those who are saying that they believe in Jesus, they even admire Jesus, they're just not Christians. It may even be that the majority of members of so-called Christian churches in America are those who admire Jesus as a quote-unquote good teacher, but they would never submit themselves to everything that he says or allow their lives to be so identified with his person that they could be as ostracized as he was. But Jesus doesn't allow us, the Bible doesn't allow us to conclude that he was merely a good teacher. There's a famous a quote from C.S. Lewis here uh, called the trilemma, the trilemma with which Jesus uh, faces us. Let me read this for excerpt from Mere Christianity. 
people often say about Jesus, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either the man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He's a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's the Lord, but he cannot be merely a good teacher given what he has said and done. His person, the person of Jesus, according to scripture, presents him as the supreme being. He is the Lord and the one we must wholeheartedly follow and submit our lives to, lose our lives for his sake and for the gospel's sake if we will ever find them into all of eternity. Second question that we ask of anything claiming to be truly effective or the most effective is, is it true? Is it true to its claims? So we ask about Jesus' teaching. Is it true? Let's read the next portion of our passage beginning in verse 14. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. This was the, the healing that you've already studied. Jesus gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. What about his teaching? Is it true? Is it demonstrably true? Well, we see in verses 14 to 18 that his teaching was not like that of any of his, of his peers. It's not a mere person's. It has to have a supernatural transcendent explanation. For one, it obviously presents God's wisdom. Verses 14 and 15. They wondered at him because no one could claim to be a rabbi. No one could be a rabbi without having studied under an accredited rabbi. 
He had to have, he had to have the degree. He had to have, he had to have the proof that he had the credentials. Jesus was poor. Jesus was not from a priestly family. Jesus never had opportunity to study at a rabbinic school. And yet he taught with all of the same quality, all the same knowledge. How can he know these things if he's never studied them, they're asking? Because it's God's wisdom. It's God's tradition, verses 16 and 17. A, um, a rabbi, uh, when he was teaching, always had to footnote what he said to a previous rabbi. He had to footnote it by a previous, just to, to show that it was uh, in continuity with the rabbinic tradition that had been taught before. Jesus footnoted nothing because he was, he was the tradition. Jesus' teaching was self-authenticating. We say when we're defending the faith that there's a, we, we, will, we will answer uh, a seeker's questions about the Bible and we'll answer their questions about the person of Christ and so forth. But the Bible teaches that the, Bible, that the Bible itself is self-authenticating. That is, that everyone has, been, has, by the, has their conscience imprinted by God who, in whose image they are born. And uh, so when you, are, when you uh, teach God's word, when you encourage someone to read God's word, you may be confident that what they read there is going to resonate with who they are, with resonate with what they know in their heart to be true. So one of the most effective evangelistic things you can do is just sit with somebody and say, let's read the Bible together. Let's work through the Gospel of John together. Let's work through the Gospel of Mark or let's work through the Gospel of Matthew together. And you read a chapter and we'll come and discuss it. And you'll know that the word, which is sharper than any two-edged sword, each time will prick their hearts and they will find, they will find residence there. So, so they heard Jesus teaching. They didn't like what they heard, but they knew in their heart of hearts it was true. How is he able to teach these things when he's not footnoting a rabbi? It is because he is the truth. He is God's wisdom, he is God's tradition, and he is God's honor. Verse 18, his person, he does not speak on his own authority, he doesn't seek his own glory, he brings glory to God. You never read about Jesus and say, what a narcissistic person, but rather this is one whose whole life was um, unassailable as one who gave his whole life and all of his teaching for the glory of God and for the good of those to whom he was ministering. Is his teaching true? It is. It's self-authenticating. And it's not law. Verses 19 to 24 uh, the, the, the best that they could do, the, what the, what the, those, who, those religious leaders who were opposing Jesus had really created a new religion. It, it was, it's never the case in all of the Bible 
that one is saved by keeping the law. It has never been the case in the Old Testament that if you, in the Old Testament, you kept the law and you were saved. It's never been the case. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was only made righteous after believing, putting his trust in the justifying God. But every man-centered religion tries to make their religion about keeping rules, keeping, doing works that will justify you. And so Jesus leans hard into their legalism. In verses 19 to 23, he turns, he exposes the hypocrisy of their legalism. Inevitably, when someone uh, uh, proposes that, that you can be accepted with God or accepted into their fellowship based on keeping their rules, they have rules that uh, are hypocritical, that they're not keeping themselves. Well, here was one of the cases. See, they're, they're criticizing Jesus. He can't, be, he can't be God's Messiah. He can't be one we have to follow because he healed a man on the Sabbath. He worked on the Sabbath day. He made his body well. Well, Jesus said, if all works, Jesus is saying by this, by this, by this argument, if all working on the Sabbath day is prohibited, then you are breaking the Sabbath day every time you circumcise a child. Because a child, according to uh, the laws of the time, had to be circumcised on the eighth day. Well, inevitably, the eighth day would follow, would fall on, on a Sabbath day. And so the rabbis, through the Mishnah, had had created a loophole that all other works are forbidden on the Sabbath day except circumcision. When you do a circumcision, that's not work. Jesus is using this as an illustration to say, here is the, 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 the illogic, here is the damnability of your hypocritical commitment to legalism. You are willing to condemn someone who makes another person's body well while you excuse yourselves for mutilating another person's body. Now, he didn't, he wasn't condemning circumcision, but he was showing the hypocrisy of their commitment to the law rather than to the humility of receiving grace alone as had always been taught in their faith. And then here is the dead end of legalism in verse 24. Um, it is uh, that it is judgment. The letter of the law kills, Paul says. The dead end, there is a dead end in legalism. There is, you are never going to find life. You're not going to find eternal life. You're not going to find freedom. You're not going to find good relationships. You're not going to find healthy families. You're not going to find a healthy work environment if the letter of the law, if legalism is your definition of success. Well, then thirdly, his teaching is not debatable. Look at verse 25. 
Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this Christ comes from and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I've not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? You might also look for similar teaching. We won't take the time to read it in verses 40 and 41, 46, 50 and 52. But notice that uh, the religious were not able to discount his teaching. And, but this is frequently the effort, isn't it? If, if Jesus doesn't fit into the box, then we look for those who are scholarly or those who are religious authorities to eliminate him from our having to follow him. Uh, it is not the majority that determines whether Jesus' teaching is, is false or true. The contemporary philosopher Charles Taylor has a, a phrase he calls the social imaginary to describe the dominant worldview or opinions of a whole nation or even a subculture. Here's another place where we have to test the spirits. We have to ask, what is the dominant opinion among my friend group? What is the dominant opinion among my subculture, my socioeconomic peers? What is the, what is the dominant uh, uh, worldview or opinion set for uh, my country, and does it fit with biblical teaching? And if you are out of accord with that, then you're, what do we say, canceled or eliminated or put to the side. Uh, in, in sociology, it's called the, the phenomenon of the designated patient. If the majority of, of the of the, of, the, of the subculture that you're in is toxic or dysfunctional or, or tolerable of, let's say, an addict or an alcoholic or somebody who is, uh, who is wounding people with their narcissism. And then one member of the group stands up and says, you know, Uncle Joe, uh, I think he's an alcoholic. Or, or Aunt Susie, I think she, I think she is uh, borderline and we are... We need, to, we need to address her compassionately. The system can turn on the one who doesn't want to go along with just pretending that everything is fine. And in sociology or psychology, they identify that person as the designated patient. It's not the real person who should be the patient. It's the person who dares to speak up. Jesus is the designated patient. And to follow Jesus will, off, will sometimes put you in that role too. Oh, can't turn that. That guy's a nut, or he just, he's uh, so narrow-minded, or they, they don't know how to have fun. They don't fit in. But following Jesus, no matter how many are against you, will be the only true way. And, and then it's shown that his, uh, his teaching is not debatable even by the most powerful. Verse 46 
no one dared lay a hand on him, lay a hand on him because they recognized that his teaching was not like any other. Well, quickly I'll go through this uh, next point and just read some representative verses in verses 30 to 36. Um, uh, let's see, let's go 42 to 44 when Jesus says, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet rises from Galilee. In verse 37, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Here's the simple point of this last verses. And that is when Jesus shows up, everything changes. When Jesus is present, in your life, when you bring the presence of Jesus into any situation, it should change everything. James Russell Lowell said, show me a place on the face of the earth 10 miles square where a man may provide for his children in decency and comfort, where age is venerated, where womanhood is protected, where human life is held in due regard, and I'll show you a place where the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone before and laid the foundation. The proof of whether, one of the proofs of Jesus as the most effective Messiah is when he shows up in a life, that life makes a difference. Makes a difference in your life, the way you react to stress, the way you respond in relationships, the way you treat people the way you live in your home, the, the, the way you watch the news, the way you read the news. Jesus' presence in your life makes a difference. When you're not conscious of his presence, not living in that reality, it's demonstrated. And then it's demonstrated corporately. When the presence of Jesus is gathered corporately with God's people, their, their, their presence in a community should make a difference, and it has historically. That's not social gospel. That's the gospel that makes a difference when it shows up in a society. And if Jesus is not present in your life, then uh, it's understandable why you may be absolutely frantic or when the, when the financial news turns sour, you become desperate. And so Jesus doesn't condemn you for that. Jesus says, are you thirsty? 
come to me. He's he's at this feast of booze where every day there was some water poured, poured out at the altar and wine poured out at the altar. It was poured out every day for seven days and on the eighth day it wasn't poured out. This is the day that Jesus said, I'm not going up to the feast during the first seven days. My hour has not yet come. He goes up on the eighth day. Why? Because they're not pouring out water and wine symbolically. He shows up as the water and wine. The water of life and the wine of joy. Isaiah 12, 3 was quoted during the Feast of Tabernacles. With joy will they draw on the waters of life. You need that presence in your life? And Jesus says, quit trying to find your water. Quit trying to find your joy. And everything else I am the person that you're looking for. I am the present one who brings peace. There's an old story from Martin Lloyd-Jones' biography. He was the famous preacher of Westminster Chapel in London. And um, he told a story about a, a woman in there in their uh, town in London who, who uh, told fortunes. She did seances. She was a diviner. And she told the story about herself that for, for years she would watch people walk by her shop with their Bibles in hands with a look of expectation on their faces. So one night... She uh, didn't have any business. And so she decided uh, she wasn't feeling well. And she decided for whatever reason to follow this stream of people who were going by her shop and into Westminster Chapel. She went into the worship service where they sang songs of praise and they were praying and Dr. Lloyd-Jones was preaching. And she said, I sensed there in that service a power that I have encountered in the world of divination. I felt it, but this power was different. It was a clean power. You need that clean, cleansing power in your life? Do you this morning need to draw with joy on the wells, the water of salvation. Then it's not just Christian teaching here this morning. It is Christ himself. You can't see him, but he is just as really present. It is Jesus himself who stretches out his arms and says, I am the most effective, the truest, the most transformative Messiah. I am the only one. I'm everything you've been searching for. Come to me, drink deeply, and I'll make you one who has water and joy to share. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I thank you for these men who are willing at an early hour to do the hard work of looking at 52 verses of Scripture 
that they might learn the truth and know the true Messiah. And I pray that uh, as there are in each of our lives people who need to hear about Jesus and need to come to Jesus uh, as the true and only Messiah whose presence will make a transformative difference in their life. I pray that we first would sit at Jesus' feet this morning and say, Lord Jesus, put your cross freshly on my shoulder. Cause me to lose myself for your sake and for the gospel's sake. No matter what it costs me, Lord Jesus, I want to be totally identified and united with you that I might not only uh, know you more intimately and live with you joyfully into all of eternity, but that my life would make a difference in this world and in the lives I touch. I pray this for these men, my dear brothers. I pray it all for all of us. In Jesus' name we pray. We said together, amen.